I mean, sometimes in life, the, the small adjustments are what make the greatest impact. I mean, it happens all the time, doesn't it, in your life? Even though what happens is we often neglect those small things, thinking that the things that matter are the big things. And it happens not just maybe in your parenting or with your friendships or in your business or whatever area of life. It happens even in your sense of mission with God. See, what I'm convinced is that lots of people, lots of people in the church are, are taking themselves out of the mission of God because we're convinced that we can't do the big things, and so we're not a part of it. We're, we're convinced that to be on mission for God, you have to do great things, you have to do loud things, you have to do big things, and so you have to preach to thousands of people, or, or maybe you have to feed hundreds of people, or you have to disciple dozens of people, right? You've got these big numbers that you want to be a part of something big, and, and if you can't be a part of something big, then I guess I can't be a part of it at all. And so we exclude ourselves because there's something or someone that has said it has to be big. It has to be great to make a great impact. And let me tell you something. What, what if God wants to do something great through small things? What if in your life God wants to do something incredibly impactful, but it's not going to be this, this big show. It's going to be a very small adjustment in your life. And it's going to make a great impact. I believe the way God does his greatest work is primarily through those small things. God loves to use the mustard seed. God loves to use the hidden things. God, God loves to use the people who no one would expect to do the greatest work. See, we're continuing this series called Pray for One, and, and the series is all about uh, getting our eyes to be open to see the people that are around us. That, that's what it's really about, because God, I, I believe God has already put people in your life who, who he has placed there for the very purpose that you would be used by him in their life. That can be in all kinds of ways, just to bless them or to love them or to share good news with them or to pray for them or whatever it may be. But our goal this year is to try to open our eyes to see those people. And so it's going to kind of take place in this prayer that we're encouraging folks to pray this year. And this is the simple prayer. God, give me one person to share your love with today. Give me just one person. I don't need 12 people. I don't need 100 people. I don't need it for, you know, I don't need to be in their life for the next seven years. I just need one person today that I can share your love with. Just give me one. And I believe if our whole church is praying that for a whole year, can you imagine what God would do? Can you imagine the, the lives that would be transformed from that small thing that could radically change the course of our church? That, that's what I want to look at today. What, what does it look like to be in God's mission through these small ways? It's actually surprisingly simple. And, that, and that's what I want to look at this first point is a simple strategy. The scene in our text today begins in verse 27. Look at what it says with me. It says, after this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, Jesus in this story has just come from cleansing a leper, and then he moves on to heal a paralytic, right? And then now he's moving on to Levi. And so Jesus, in a sense, is kind of on this trail of transformation, 
Lives are being changed. Jesus is going from one town to the next, to the next, to the next. People are being uh, you know, exposed to the good news of the kingdom. And all this is happening. But then he comes upon this tax collector named Levi. And tax collectors were, were the worst of the worst in their culture. If you don't know this, if you haven't read the Bible before and, and kind of have a context for this, they hated tax collectors more than you hate the tax collector. I guarantee you. And here's why. They, they hated tax collectors because not only were they taking their money, it was the people who they were supposed to be friends and family with. See, the tax collectors were the Jewish men who sold out to the Roman government who were their oppressors, right? They sold out to the Roman government for cash, they decided, because Rome would come along and, and Rome would say, all right, who wants to buy the rights to take the taxes? And, and you would pay a lump sum of money, and you have now the rights to, to charge whatever you want in the taxes. So let's say you paid $1,000, we'll just use round numbers, you can now take that right, and now you can charge a million dollars in taxes. It didn't matter. Rome had their money, and they didn't care. And so these people, the tax collectors, were not only stealing their money, it was their brother down the street to support the Romans. And here's Levi, one of those people, the hated enemy, the sellout. And Jesus comes to his little tax booth and he gives him just two words, follow me, follow me. And something deep within Levi, this, this young man who was a tax collector stealing from his own people, hears those words from Jesus. He hears Jesus say, follow me. And something deep within him says, yes, Lord, I will follow you. And the Bible says he leaves behind everything to follow him. Listen, I think some of you here this morning, you're, you've been hearing Jesus say that to you for a while now. Right? Maybe it's been years, maybe it's been months, maybe it's been weeks, maybe it's just the next few minutes. Jesus has been saying to you, follow me, follow me. And there's something deep within you that says, yes, I have to do that. I have to leave behind whatever it is. I have to go follow Jesus because Jesus is calling me to himself. But when Levi hears that, he, he leaves behind everything. He goes to follow Jesus. It changes his life forever. But listen, it doesn't just change his life. It changes how he interacts with everyone else around him. Levi, it says, look, look at what he says. He throws a party so his friends can come meet Jesus. Look at verse 29. It says, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. I mean, just picture the scene for a moment. Jesus invites Levi to come follow him. Levi says, yes, I'll follow you. Now let's throw a party so all my tax-collecting friends can come over and meet you. I mean, imagine, I just want you to feel the, the hatred that would be in the room. Imagine Jesus is going to a party and, and you're a Republican and it's Nancy Pelosi's house. Or if you're a Democrat, it's Mitch McConnell's house. Like, or, or if you're an independent, it's any politician's house. I don't know what you like or don't like. But, but that's whose house they're at. And it's all their political friends who've been taking advantage of them. They hate these people. And Jesus is at their table. Jesus is at the table with the liars, the extortioners, the sellouts, the oppressors. And strangely, Jesus feels right at home with these people. Why? I mean, how would, you, how would you complete this sentence? The Son of Man came 
blank. Maybe the Son of Man came preaching, or the Son of Man came to, to bring the kingdom, or, or the Son of Man came to die on the cross. I mean, those are all truths, but those sentences are not in the Bible. Here's how that sentence is completed three times in the New Testament. Here you go. You ready? The first one is, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as, as a ransom for many. That's Mark chapter 10. The second one is, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Number three, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. What in the world? I mean, the first two have to do with why Jesus came. Jesus came very clearly so that he could save the lost. Jesus came for that purpose, but how did he come? How is he going to save the lost? The third one tells us, he came eating and drinking. I don't know if you knew this about your Savior, but Jesus was a partier. Jesus was at so many parties, they started to call him a glutton and a drunkard. Because clearly Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd. I mean, Jesus is there at the table with all the people who, who they would declare are not supposed to be at the table. And yet Jesus is right there. His mission strategy was very simple. Here it is. Grab the charcoal, get the grill going, get something on the grill, let's get the dominoes and the cards, and let's get to work. Jesus' best work was around the table. It was around the table. Why am I telling you all this? Well, why do you care what Jesus did with his food and with his time? Listen, because some of us have removed ourselves from the mission of God that God has called you into because you've said, I don't fit into the category of ministry. Like, I don't like to preach sermons. I'm terrified of the stage. I don't know how to lead a Bible study. I've barely read the Bible. I don't know what it means to talk to people about Jesus. All those things scare me, and so I'm going to pull myself out, and I'm not going to be a part of the mission that God has for me. But listen, you're not understanding how Jesus did his work. There's only a few sermons from Jesus in the Bible. Did you know that? Most of Jesus' time was hanging out with people. Most of Jesus' time was spent around a table just having conversation and praying with people and leading people to understand what's going on. And, and so sometimes we, we limit ourselves to think, if I'm going to do ministry or I'm going to be in, on mission for God, I have to have some kind of theological degree or i got to know the Bible frontwards and backwards or i got to sing on key, which is actually true if you're singing. Trust me. Amen, Amen somebody. Right? Or, or, or all these things. You, you say, I... I, I Pull myself out because I don't fit in those boxes. But listen, that's not what the Bible is talking about. It's not the way Jesus did ministry. If you can eat a meal, you can be on mission. Some of y'all like to eat. I love to eat. If you could eat a meal, you can be on mission. It's, it's really just, how, how do I gather people around in my life? How do I invite them to the table? And so the question is not, how do I preach a sermon or how do, I, how do I give the four steps to salvation? The question is, who do I need to invite to, to be at my table, to be where I am, to, to listen to the stories, to, to be involved in my community? How, how do I invite them into that life? I guarantee you there's somebody at your workplace right now who's going through a hard time, 
who's trying to figure out how to make sense of the grief and the loss and the pain. And God has placed them in your life. I guarantee you right now, somebody on your block or in your apartment complex is having questions about God and and wondering what the meaning of life is and how how they can have any purpose because it seems like every day is just a, a slog through meaninglessness. I guarantee you God has put people in your life the question is, how do you invite them in? Just like Levi, you, you can be fresh off the follow me message and still invite people in. You can be the person who doesn't really know much. You got baptized last week and you can invite people in. That, that, that's what he's saying right here, right? And this is why we believe so deeply in connect groups. Connect groups are a great way to build relationships and connect with people in our church. And and I tell people, if you're not in a connect group, it's going to be really hard to have community at Strong Tower. But here's the other reason we believe in connect groups. Because you can invite people who are far from God to come sit at your house and have a meal. And, And they're more likely to be open to that than to come hear me preach. It's not that great. But what, but what you want to do is set it up as just, this is an opportunity for us to just get to know each other, to build relationships, to, to break down the barriers and the misconceptions about what church people do and how, how, how Christians live and, and to really have people in Christian community even before they believe. Connect groups are a place for that. Who, who can you invite into that? Like as you sign up for a group and you think about what group I'm going to connect with and how it's going to serve me and my, my needs and what I, I want to be a part of, think about this too. Who else in my life can be a part of this? Who else can be at the table? That's what, that's what God's calling us into is, is that kind of work. And yet some of us struggle with this because honestly we, we live a separated life. And this is the next point. A separated life, because not everyone was excited about this party. Look at verse 30. It says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This is fascinating to me because the Pharisees weren't necessarily upset at the party, they were upset at the guest list. I mean, they, they knew how to have a good party. These were the elite in their culture. They, they, they were the ones that threw the good parties. They, they knew how to have a good party. And in fact, in the messianic age, right, when the Messiah was to come, they knew that that would be full of feasting and celebration. Their problem, their issue is who's at the table. They thought that when the Messiah would come, the people who are at the table are the righteous ones, the good ones, the, the faithful ones, Right? Notice the difference between Luke's description of this group and their description. Luke says in the beginning that it was tax collectors and others. And then when it gets to the, the Pharisees grumbling, it says the tax collectors and sinners. Right? The Pharisees were, were pressing in to say, these are the kinds of people that should not be at the feast. These are the kinds of people who, who've stolen from us, who, who've abandoned us, who've wronged us, who've hurt us deeply. These are the kinds of people who don't care about God, who, who are far from God. They should not be there. And then Jesus sits down at the table with them and wrecks their whole legalistic uh, assumption. See, Pharisees think, Pharisees like you and me, we, we, we think salvation happens by separation. 
Let me explain that a little bit. We, we think that, that salvation happens by separation. For the Pharisees, they, they had these, these uh, food laws that in the Old Testament were supposed to be applied to priests as priests uh, were, were to sanctify themselves going into the temple. Well, the Pharisees took those food laws and they applied them to everybody. And so they, they kind of raised the bar for everyone and said, everyone should live like this. And if you don't live like this, you're not holy enough. And so here they are creating this, this tribe, this group of people. And, and they did it out of this motivation that if Israel was able to, to purify itself enough, then God would come send the Messiah and redeem them. And so their theology, their understanding of the world was, if I'm going to get God to save me, it's up to me to purify myself. You following me? And so as strange as it might sound to us today, one of the leading controversial questions of Jesus' day was, who are you going to have lunch with? That was it. To, to do lunch with somebody was to do theology. And, and for the Pharisees, if you're going to eat lunch with sinners, that means you're going to become a sinner. And for Jesus, he had a completely different view than that. Jesus said, if you're going to have lunch with sinners... You're going to love sinners. Do you see the difference? For, for the Pharisees, it was salvation by separation. I'm going to save myself by not getting too close to those bad people. And Jesus is saying the complete opposite. I'm going to save them by getting close to them. That's the difference here. One is proud and one is humble. Because pride, listen, pride, it creates, it, it produces this separated life. Separated life. In 2011, uh, Auburn, Auburn's football team upset the, the great Alabama Crimson Tide. And, and if you ever watch college football, it's a, uh, it's a historic game. I mean, it, it was an epic battle and, and a historic finish. And, but one of the strange things that happened that night was not during the game. It was after the game. And actually, during, during uh, this evening, there was a man who went to Auburn's campus. And on the campus, there's a place called Tumor's Corner. And on that corner were these two oak trees, these, these beautiful historic oak trees. And this man decided he was going to poison the oak trees because he was a fan of Alabama. And he was upset about what happened. And so he, he uh, poisoned these oak trees, but no one knew about it. And so they saw that these oak trees, these historic beautiful things that, that, uh, that it was kind of like this center of celebration and, and uh, history that was there. They, they were dying and no one knew why they were dying and, and what was going to happen, but they couldn't stop it. And so one day, a couple days later, this man named Harvey Updike calls into a radio station and he admits that he's the one that poisoned the trees. But when he's on the call, to give you an idea of how big of an Alabama fan this guy is, he named his daughter Alabama Updike. You catch that? Alabama Updike. I mean, he is a fan of fans, right? And, and so he calls into the show and he says, I've done it and, and, and I'm so proud that I did it. I would do it again if I had to. I don't care what the consequences are. And he signs off Roll Tide. Well, he turned himself in and so he ends up getting arrested and, and uh, in trouble for what he did. But later on, when he was interviewed more about why he did it, listen to this. This is his explanation. He said, I wanted them to hate me as much as I hate them. Do you hear that? I mean, it, it's tribalism at its ugliest. I want them to hate me as much as I hate them. 
Don't think for a moment that that same kind of tribalism isn't in your heart and in my heart and in the church. That tribalism. Right? It's deep within us. It's the same spirit that was in these Pharisees, this heart that, that wants to separate ourselves from anyone else who's different than us and anyone else who's hurt us. And, and we want to be separated from them because they're the bad people. We separate ourselves from those who vote differently, from those who dress differently, from those who believe differently, from those who make more money, those who live in a different neighborhood, those who, who we can't figure out how to define them, right? We, we try to find anything in our life that, that can define us as different than that person, and we separate ourselves. We separate ourselves. Because once we find our tribe, once, once we find our people, once we find our little group that makes us feel better, we want to exclude the other people who are not in it. Because now we have all the justification to say, I am better than that person for whatever the reason may be. Right? It becomes an us versus them. It's those people. And, and in the church, nothing kills evangelism like tribalism. Because now, now it's just us in here. It's just us trying to care for ourselves and protect ourselves. And, and it's them out there. But do you, do you hear how, how that tribalism is really rooted in a deep legalism? I find this one thing, whatever it is, it's, it's how I parent or it's my spiritual life or, or it's where my kids go to school or it's how much money I have or it's how hardworking I am or whatever the thing is that, that makes you feel like I've got more than that other group of people. We take that thing and we hold on to it and what the Bible says is that's called idolatry. We, we, we lift it up to the place that it makes me feel superior. It makes me feel better than everyone else and it becomes my source of salvation. I am, I am better in God's eyes because of that thing. But not only does it destroy your relationship with God, it destroys your relationship with anyone else who doesn't have whatever that thing is. And your, your tribe gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until you realize it's just you. It's just you. What, what Jesus is saying here is, or, or what, what Levi is showing us here, I should say, is that there's a way to, to look outward, right? There's a way to say, uh, who have I separated myself from so that I can include them in? I mean, ask yourself that. Who, who have I separated myself from? Who, who's at my table? I mean, that's, that's a good indicator. Who, who is at the table at your house? Who, who do you go out to eat with? Who, who, who do you have over for, for family dinner night? Who, who do you, you know, hang out with? Are there people who look different? Are there people who vote different? Are there people who believe differently? What Jesus is calling us towards is, is a table that, that brings people together. Right? Jesus didn't live this separated life. He was in the trenches with all the people who were in need. He was at the table with the lost. He was at the table with the people who needed him the most. It's the same table of grace that we need ourselves, right? And so in our pride, not only do we neglect others, but we neglect our own need. And this is the last point, a sickness that's hidden, a sickness hidden See, the Pharisees attack the disciples, but it's actually Jesus who responds for them in verse 31. Look at what it says. It says, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well 
have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Jesus makes it crystal clear why he came. He says, I came for the sick. I came for the unrighteous. I came for the people who knew that they didn't need me or knew that they didn't have me, that needed me. That I came for the people who didn't think that their life was together or, or that they were strong and competent. I came for the people who had failed, who were sick, who were dying, who had a death sentence and knew it was coming. I came for those people. I didn't, I didn't come for the people who have it all together. I came for the people who knew they shouldn't be there. And yet here's the shocking part of what Jesus says to them. He says to the Pharisees, you are in that group. You're in that group. See, the Pharisees had, had two groups. They had the sinners and the saints. And of course, the Pharisees, like us, like to place themselves in the better group, right? They're in the saint group. And that's because they had memorized more scripture and they had known more about the Bible and they were leaders in the church and, and they had this great moral outward appearance. And so they were the kind of people that said, I am the saint and all those other people are the sinners. And Jesus comes to him and he says, no, there's not two groups. There's one. There's one tribe. Jesus says to them later on, he says, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside the cup is still filthy. But what he's saying is you look great on the outside, and so that may distinguish you in a sense that you think it, it's enough. But listen, if you look inward, if you look at your heart, there's one group. It's the sick. It's the sick. And you don't know you're sick. See, spiritual healing requires that we see our sickness. That we see our sickness. Sometimes there's a severe cost to missing things. That was the case in uh, Spain's state-of-the-art submarine. It was called the S-81 Isaac Peril. I'm trying to get the name right here. It was commissioned in 2013. And it was supposed to be this incredible state-of-the-art submarine that was going to change their navy in Spain. And there was one problem. They realized after they had built it that it only went one direction. Down. It would submerge down into the water and it could never come back up. And they realized the problem was it was actually built a hundred tons too heavy. A hundred tons. It was too heavy. It couldn't make it up. It could only go downward. They invested millions and millions of dollars for a submarine that wouldn't function. And so they started to go back and figure out why in the world did this happen. And it turns out it all was because of one, listen to this, one pesky decimal point that was off in the calculations. And it cost them an extra $9 million per meter in materials. Per meter. It took them seven years to fix you talk about a costly mistake, a costly oversight. But here's the thing. The problem was always there. The whole time they were building it, the problem was there, but it wasn't always seen. It was always there, but it wasn't always seen. See, if you don't, listen to me carefully, if you don't see your sin, you can't confess your sin. And if you can't confess your sin, Jesus is saying you can't be healed from your sin. 
The first step of receiving the good news of the gospel is receiving the bad news of the gospel. The bad news is, God, open my eyes to see my sin, right? Open my eyes to see the sickness of my own soul. Not the sickness of the people around me, not the sickness of my parents, not the sickness of my neighbors, not the sickness of my children. Help me to see the sickness of my own soul. My own idolatry of success, my own impatience with people, my own hunger for God's or for people's approval, my own uh, cynicism about change, my anger with my kids, my lust for more, my discontent with God. God, open my eyes to see my own sin so I can see my need of you. That's the first move of the gospel. You have to see it. You have to know that there's a problem in your own soul that you can't fix. That's how you get to healing. But listen, it starts with confessing, and then it moves to trusting. See, we trust the promise of Scripture. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It was once said that for every look you take towards your sin, take ten looks to Christ. What it's saying is you can see your sin, but don't stop at your sin. If you stop at your sin, it's going to end in despair and destruction, and you're only going to get worse, but you have to see it. You have to pass through the sight of your sin so that you can get to the Savior. And once you get to the Savior, right, you see this person who is the great physician. And you start to pray, God, open my eyes to see Jesus, my great physician, because he came to, see, to heal the sick, right? Isaiah 53, with his wounds we are healed. And so the great physician was wounded for our healing. His healing hands carried his cross up Calvary. His healing hands braced himself as he was beaten for us. His healing hands were nailed to that tree. His healing hands bled drops of grace for you, for me, for sinners. Jesus became wounded for your healing. Jesus became unclean for your cleansing. Jesus became sick for your salvation. Jesus is our hope for healing. It's only in him. And praise God, he is eager to heal. He's eager to heal. All right, as we close today, do you need the healing grace of Jesus? That, that, that's the main question. The reason Levi threw a party is because God had transformed his life when he met Jesus. And so Levi said, I need everybody to know him. I need every tax collector in Jerusalem to know this man who changed my life. And so maybe that's you here today. Maybe as, as you're hearing Jesus say, follow me, that, that's the calling to you, that he would, he would come into your life, transform your life, heal the sickness, maybe that you were unaware of or the sickness that you were avoiding, the sickness in your soul that you need, the transform, transforming power of Jesus. That's his invitation today, is that he would heal whatever it may be. And it, it, it's real simple. It looks like this, God, God, help me to see my sin, but then God, heal me from it. May, may the blood of Jesus, may the life of Jesus transform me. That's, a, that's what it looks like. Let's pray together. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come move upon our hearts in this place. People who in this place are, are full of pride and separation and fear but also people who have been separated from you all of us in this place Lord we need your healing 
whatever it may be, whatever we bring to the table today. And yet, Lord, you invite us. You invite us to come feast, to feast on the gospel as unworthy people. And yet we find our worth and our value and our healing, our forgiveness in you. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who are sensing your calling even today, that they would respond in repentance and faith. You would move upon their hearts. Pray in Jesus' name. Let's all stand to our feet as we sing this last song. And and if you'd like to be prayed for, our prayer team is going to be down here at the front. We would love to pray for you during this last song. Let's sing together.